Blog Talk Radio. Ladies and gentlemen of America, this is AJC Radio, where we bring the message of justice all around the world. Tonight, we deal with what we call cruel and usual punishment in the criminal justice system. That's in county jails, that's in prisons across this nation. How is it that the treatment of human beings has been reduced to animalistic actions? And our society is called it normal. Cruel and usual punishment sanctioned abuse behind the wall. We take off right now. And there you have it. I'm Lamont Banks, along with Kendrick Barr and Samson Riddle, William Williams, Dennis Merritt, Cliff Stewart, and the entire AJC radio team tonight as we begin this discussion on cruel and usual punishment. Sanctioned abuse behind the wall of America's prisons, its jails. And I'll tell you what, it's a discussion we have to have. And we welcome all the folks across America tonight to this program as we get ready to dig into this conversation. And, William, how important is this? I'll tell you, uh, most folks are we're looking for probably the phrase cruel and unusual punishment. But we're talking about cruel and unusual punishment because of the normalcy of the mistreatment and the killing and the deaths behind the wall in America's jails and prisons. How important that we get this message out tonight. You know, what, what we're talking about, usual, common, accepted behavior, behavior that, that is allowed uh, by those that, are, that we respect and, ex- and, and expect to watch over the safety of our, our loved ones if they are unfortunately put behind bars. And what is, what is allowed, the mistreatment, uh, we've talked, you know, for years we've talked about uh, the justice system or the injustice system and, you know, what, how the treatment, the treatment to the families, what they're being fed, so forth and so on. But when you talk about that this is accepted and that people are allowed to get away with this without punishment, without any repercussions, it's, a, it's amazing. And I think our listeners will find this show um, very enlightening. When you, when you really look at it, you really look at the fact that when our loved ones are behind bars, what they could be, how they are treated, and what is allowed, and how people can really just take advantage of it. Go ahead, Samson. No, absolutely. And it's like what William was touching on was absolutely right in the fact that, I mean, hearing about abuse, hearing about people being victimized. Uh, behind bars and everything else like that. I mean, it's almost become society has almost become norm to that because they think, oh, they're in prison for a reason they deserve it. Well, no. Like we said on the show many times before, they're serving their sentence. They're paying their price by being isolated from society. They're behind bars and they're doing whatever you know stint that you know has been levied against them. They do not deserve to be treated like animals. They do not deserve to be dehumanized, humiliated talked down to or beaten on a regular basis. The fact of the matter is, is this, this injustice system says they want to rehabilitate and reintroduce them into society. But the fact of the matter is, 
is when you demoralize a person to a certain extent, you take away, you strip them of their humanity. You don't give them a chance to actually, you know, to come back. And, and that's when you have these repeat offenders. That's when we have somebody because they don't have the mentality once they've been through all this cruelty. They don't have to because they start suspecting everybody and everything of being out to get them. They're used to a pattern of abuse. They're used to being treated like they're not human. And the fact of the matter is, is it's absolutely sick that these correctional officers, medical uh, staff at these prisons and county lockups, and even the, the wardens that are supposed to be looking out over the entire thing, like none of them, none of them are on the side of these men and women that are incarcerated for whatever reason. And, and it, it's a true travesty. And again, and unfortunately, it has become the norm where, you know, as we said, it's it's not unusual anymore. It's not unheard of anymore. It, no one's shocked about these people just getting beaten to death and dying in prison. Dennis, your thoughts? I agree uh, with all the hosts. It's just it, if you really look at it, uh, it's sad to say that uh, the judge hands down a sentence uh, and he's told, you know, you're going to serve five years. And then you get to prison, and now you got guards handing down a sentence. You got all these other people adding to your sentence, and it's a it's a it's a shame. You're treated like a, a dog or animal, and then you're not your your rights are not you're not you're not given any rights. And then if there are rights, uh, you know the the guards, and this is not all guards, uh, and not all wardens, but the majority have come to this place where now they they believe that. You know, it's their job to ensure uh, that you understand that uh, what the sentence is, and then they add on to it. And it's just a tragedy. And, and you're trying to prevent people from coming back in. Uh, there's no, there's nothing set up that when these individuals get out, uh, that's going to keep them from coming back in. But anyway, uh, it's a tragedy. And I think tonight's going to open a lot of eyes to let people know that, hey, you, when you get sentenced, you're sentenced more than once. Because now you got to deal with guards behind the wall and those that you actually live with. Well, I'll tell you what. Let me get Kendrick's thoughts on that as well. Kendrick? Well, the issue is, too, is as being one that's personally uh, been in prison and experienced how you are treated. Um, a lot of these tactics are considered fair game as part of the toolbox of just being a correctional officer. Now, they'll tell you on the, on the official side, oh, our job is to make sure that everyone's safe. But then you, when, you, when you get them to speak honestly, a lot of prison guards, they think their job is to help punish you, that you know, your sentence wasn't enough. Now that you are here, it's our job to make sure that you pay for your actions. Well, what they end up doing is, is, is putting a lot of things that are abusive and dehumanizing in order to what they say to keep control. But really it comes down to you, you start getting uh, – uh, certain individuals that think this is this is uh, okay because society's not going to question. They're not going to say, "Hey, well, let us see how you're treating fellow citizens." And that's what they forget about. These are Americans. These are not. Uh, you don't lose your citizenship because you go to prison. You don't lose your right to be treated fairly as a human being because you go to prison. So it doesn't give you right because no one knows you're there. The main society, you're off way off in some prison out in the middle of some field somewhere, but. They know that the average individual is not really thinking about, well, what's happening to those inmates? And then they, you got to get rid of the stigma that, you know, whatever happens, they deserve it anyway. No one yeah. deserves to be treated inhuman, and, no, and that's sure. the main point. No, for sure. And, and again, uh, we're going to be joined at the top of the hour, 7 p.m., 9 Eastern, uh, by Miss Monaco 
Casey Monaco. I had the opportunity to speak with her about a week or so ago, uh, and she has a lot to add to this story uh, and to this topic. Uh, Ms. Monaco has spent the last several decades advocating for the rights of individuals as well as trying to make a difference in people's lives. Her past efforts included St. Jude's Children's Hospital, CASA, and, and Prince George's County School District in Maryland. Uh, but she is a, an outspoken uh, proponent of criminal justice reform uh, through her lobbying efforts, as well as advocating for families and loved ones of those that are incarcerated. We're going to hear from her at the top of the hour. That's going to be great. Folks, just, just settle in tonight. This is going to be a very, very interesting and informative discussion, uh, but it's going to have some issues to it. We're going to be uh, uh, showing you some inside county jails, prisons across this country, and the abuse is horrific. I warn you of that ahead of time. This is AJC Radio. We'll be right back. There are no loose ends in TV procedural dramas. At the end of the hour, the bad guy always gets what's coming to him. Unfortunately, the real world is a lot more complicated. We know from the work of the Innocence Project and other organizations in the Innocence Network that the system doesn't always get it right. According to the National Registry of Exonerations, since 1989, nearly 2,000 people have been exonerated of crimes they didn't commit. What people don't realize is a good number of those people pleaded guilty to crimes even though they were innocent. In fact, in nearly 10% of the nation's DNA exonerations, people pleaded guilty to serious crimes and agreed to serve significant prison time because the system is stacked against them, especially if they are poor and people of color. That's right. The stakes are so high that we have innocent men and women agreeing to serve long prison sentences. A system that puts that much pressure on people to plead guilty is a problem. Visit guiltypleadproblem.org to learn more about the men and women who are pressured into pleading guilty to crimes they didn't commit. And join us in demanding that our elected officials do something to protect the innocent people who get caught up in a broken criminal justice system. Thank you. We have a big problem, and we need your help. It's happening on college campuses, at bars, at parties, even in high schools. It's happening to our sisters and our daughters. Our wives and our friends. It's called sexual assault, and it has to stop. We have to stop it. So listen up. If she doesn't consent, or if she can't consent, it's rape, it's assault. It's a crime. It's wrong. If I saw it happening and I was taught, you have to do something about it. If I saw it happening, I'd speak up. If I saw it happening, I'd never blame her. I'd help her. Because I don't want to be a part of the problem. I want to be a part of the solution. We need all of you to be part of the solution. This is about respect. It's about responsibility. It's up to all of us to put an end to sexual assault. And that starts with you. Because one is too many. Do you know anyone who's been sent to prison who's innocent? The United States is experiencing record numbers of exonerations in cases where people were wrongfully convicted of crimes they did not commit. If you believe that no one should be sent to prison for crimes they didn't commit, there is something that you can do today. By remembering a just cause with a monthly, annual, or one-time donation, you can help in the fight against wrongful convictions. Call a just cause at 855-529-4252 or visit a-justcause.com and click the donate button. 
A just cause is a 501c3. Wrongful convictions are wrong. Let's be the voice of those who can't speak from behind the wall. Black History Month is huge. It's a way for us to reconnect with our history. Continue to celebrate and acknowledge the immense amount of contributions that black people have made. Black History Month is a celebration of culture. Another opportunity for everyone to remember that we're all human. And to have a month that reminds people that black history is American history. More than just having names and numbers and dates that are in a book. To remember how important it is to be black. I think that the important Black History Month is that if you don't know where you came from, you're not going to be prepared for where you're going. We all stand on the shoulders of somebody else. If I stand tall, it's because I'm standing on the shoulders of those who came before me. Black History. More than a month. We know you care. Now is time. Time to change the face of justice. Did you know that minority and youth participation in juries is extremely low to non-existent? The incidence of youth and minority offenders faced with trials have exploded. Youth and minorities are not being represented as they should be. We must represent for people to get fair trials. If you acquire a state ID or driver's license, it allows you to register to vote. And it allows you to become eligible for jury service. If you're 18, a U.S. citizen with a state ID or driver's license, and registered to vote, you're eligible to be called for jury duty. If called and selected, make it your duty to serve. We can't get justice without you. Change. 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 Change the face of justice. Check your local county or state jury service website for further details. Get ready for the day, buddy. Hey, Dad. Hey, Dad. Do we have a gun? What's up? We have a gun. Why do you ask that, kiddo? Can I play with it? No. No, absolutely not. It's not a toy. You know that. Do I? I bet it looks like one. Yeah, well, it's not. Anyway, I need it to protect you, your sister and mom. From what? From bad guys, like on TV. But what about the eight kids who got shot every day by mistake? Their daddies probably thought they were safe, too. Where'd you hear that? TV. Yeah, well, maybe we don't believe everything we hear on TV. Where do you keep it? <laughs> it's hidden. I bet it's on top shelf of the closet, under your sweatshirt. Is it loaded? It's not. I, I keep the bullets... In the boots with the red laces, and the chest beside the bed? I haven't found them yet, but I'm sure I can you always told me to be curious. Remember when I found my Christmas gift? I'm a good climber, you know. No. No, that's not what I meant. Look, I, I need to be ready if someone breaks in. What about when it's just me and Mom? You taught me to be brave. I can use a gun to protect her. No, Justin, I promise. I'll teach you how to handle a gun when you're old enough. And what if I don't make it to old enough? I could get bullied and decide it's too much for me. It would be so easy with our gun. Our gun? No, buddy. My gun. But it is our gun. In our home. Happens all the time. I'll make sure that doesn't happen. I'm always here for you. But, Dad, you're not always here. Temperatures, we should recharge normal high below 82 degrees by this afternoon. Clear skies tonight.
with a low near 70. Increasing cloudiness tomorrow, sticky and humid with a high of 57. History is important because it shows where you're coming from and where you're going. Type 2 diabetes is something that runs in my family, which means I'm at risk. In fact, one in three American adults are at risk for developing type 2 diabetes. And knowing this, if I do nothing, that family history becomes my family's future. And my family is too important to me for that. Take the risk factor assessment today at AskGreenNo.com. Almost every day in the news, we hear stories about innocent people who are returning home after spending years in prison for crimes they did not commit. What you may not know is that their problems don't end once the limelight fades. For many wrongfully convicted individuals don't receive a penny for the injustice that they faced. Take the case of Floyd Bledsoe. He spent 16 years in the Kansas prison for a murder and rape he did not commit. And while Floyd was eventually exonerated, he lost everything his family, his farm, and decades worth of income. Unfortunately, Floyd's story is not unique. Kansas, along with 17 other states, doesn't have a law to compensate wrongfully convicted individuals for the injustices they suffered. And in states with compensation laws, many of those are woefully inadequate. We owe it to all the men and women in all 50 states to provide fair compensation to those who've suffered these injustices. Join me in urging our lawmakers to do the right thing by the wrongfully convicted. Go to innocenceproject.org to find out how you can help. Ladies and gentlemen, this is AJC Radio, and thank you for joining us tonight. As we said prior to the break tonight, dealing with a very serious topic, and make no mistake about it, uh, this is a normalcy within the criminal justice system of abuse, and it has become the norm in the American uh, justice system. Uh, and we're going to be dealing with those topics tonight. Why is it and how is it that our citizens can go into a county jail across this country and die within a couple of days of being basically released from county jail. How is it that a pregnant woman gives birth on a cell floor in a county prison and left there bleeding out? Uh, These are things that have become the norm in our criminal justice system. And that's why the title of the show, this is part one of a part two series. Uh, we will be joined uh, by a author, uh, Alec Karakasinis. I couldn't pronounce that last name. He wrote the book Usual Cruelty, and he's going to be dealing next week with the complicity of lawyers in the criminal justice system. Where have the lawyers failed? That's going to be next week. Uh, we're going to be talking about this book. You definitely want to go get it if you have the opportunity. Usual Cruelty. 
which means, again, a, a, the other side of cruelty uh, and the complexity, complexity, if you will, of attorneys within the criminal justice system that have, because of their actions or their failure to act as they should, that has also brought cruelty within our criminal justice system. We're going to deal with that next week. But tonight we deal with the raw issue of how is it all of the abuses, all of the lives, all of the, what, I, what definitely is cruel behavior and conduct behind the wall of our county jails and prisons, how is it that America can sit by and accept that as a normal act of behavior. And we're going to be playing some clips tonight to give you an indication, not only of how horrific that behavior is, how did it then become normal? That's going to be our discussion tonight. And uh, we're going to get into that. We're going to get into the first clip right now. Uh, Prisoners denied medical care within our criminal justice system. Let's hear the clip. Prisoners have been denied medical care in Arizona, and they've been told to pray instead. Think Progress has a story about this. And it's now been a year since a lawsuit was filed by the ACLU, alleging that there has been grave medical neglect of prisoners in Arizona's private prison health care providers. And prisoners have continued to die or endure unnecessary suffering after not receiving sometimes the most basic medical treatment. After asking for medical assistance, as, uh, uh, as I read earlier, many prisoners are told to, quote, be patient or, quote, pray, according to a new report from the American Friends Service Committee. It found that there was lack of timely emergency treatment, denials of care, failure to provide medication and medical devices. And under the Eighth Amendment, prison officials are required to provide medical treatment to prisoners. Prisoners are legally able to request that their care be consistent and that their services are accessible. Proper medication must be dispensed. Dietary restrictions must be accounted for. Uh, This year, the ACLU's lawsuit, as a result of the the, the incredible number of cases that corroborate this, has been granted class action status, which now means it applies to everyone in Arizona. I don't know, Lewis, whether this is specifically a private prison problem, The state has the sixth highest incarceration rate. And as we know from recent interviews, including with Todd Clear, private prisons only represent uh, a pretty small number of the total inmate population of this country. But to say that whether it's state or federal prisons, we don't need federal oversight when these things are going on. There are cancer patients who simply did not receive treatment, period, full stop, and died. Yep, and I... I would assume that this is mostly a problem in, in private prison, um, but who knows? I'm very curious to see what happens with this, and it's, it's pretty shocking that this has been going on for so long. It is, and we're going to continue following the story. As you know, we've been covering issues relating to pr- the prison industry, incarceration, the war on drugs, and private prisons for years. We're going to continue covering it, absolutely. Well, there you have it. Um, Usual punishment. How do you tell an inmate or a prisoner that's needing medical attention to pray? 
technically, if that was from the right place, what's wrong with telling people to pray? But that has nothing to do with what's going on here. You simply are saying you're out of luck. And who is fighting for these inmates to get medical treatment? People get sick in prison, deathly sick. Uh, I got a call a couple of days ago from a young lady in Florida at the FCI prison uh, in Florida, federal prison down there. And she was very concerned by a gentleman by the name, um, I won't say his name at the moment, but he's an inmate down there at that prison, uh, has lost 65 pounds within a couple of weeks, has uncontrollable bowel movements that he cannot control. They have refused to give this man medication over the last few weeks as he has gotten sicker and sicker and sicker. This is down in Florida. We have done shows on this program and almost every act of abuse, not all, that we saw at a very high level was out of the state of Florida. Uh, I believe the uh, Mr. Rainey, uh, Darren Rainey. Darren Rainey was the same gentleman that was cooked to death by guards when they turned the showers up, I believe it was 180 or 90 degrees, locked him in the shower. They sat outside the shower and they laughed about it. They made fun about it. He pleaded to come out. He pleaded, someone please help me. And the water boiled his skin off of his body that they had to put that skin in a tennis shoe or boot, a boot of some sort. Yes. And had another inmate clean it up. Clean it up. Go ahead, William. Continue. Well, what I was saying was, you know, basically they had they had uh, created this situation uh, that allowed them to go behind this this uh, this entrance and basically control the temperature of the showers. And, you know, I mean, when you think about that, they came up with this plan, put this man in there, came up with this, this situation where they could control the temperature and turn it up so hot and lock the doors so this man could not get out. And he's, as, as he sits in there screaming, they're laughing outside. They're laughing outside as this man is dying. His skin is falling off. He's basically being boiled alive. And so, it, go ahead. No, it's, it's just incredible to think about this is the situation, and this is happening in our prisons Every day. Well, this is why we call it usual, 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 cruel and usual punishment uh, that we have adopted. I'm trying to figure out how every listen. There are correctional officers everywhere in a state or federal prison. How is it not once correctional officer came forward, heard Mr. Rainey crying for his life, screaming for his life? Because it's the norm. It is. It's the norm. This is the danger when you when uh, abuse becomes normal. The taking of human life becomes normal. The horrific actions by a criminal justice system becomes normal. We have lost our way as a nation. How is that? How is it that not one correctional officer? There's more than two uh, correctional officers assigned to a unit. How didn't anybody come forward and say, what are you doing? This is not right. 
How is it like you that said, it goes? It's the norm. But how is? How did we come here? How did we come here? You know, this. I, I want to read this because I mean, this is this is what they said in this case. It said Rainey was locked in a shower for two hours. It was designed that he had no control over the temperature of the 180 degree water. Says he died from burns of of more than 90% of his body. 90%. And and it says it subsequently became known that his skin fell off at the touch. 90%. Two hours he stayed in there. Locked. That's what we're talking about here. And it, it's amazing. I wanted to read that just just so people could I mean, and people can go out, listeners can go out and look at this. So what I read was facts, well, at least the posted information on this case. And you talk about somebody basically boiling to death at 180 degrees temperature, and your skin literally falls off to the touch. It's amazing to think, but to your point, when you talk about somebody having at least the integrity to say, hey, listen, this is wrong. You know, any of the, the correction officers, to say, this is wrong. It's wrong for us to treat somebody like this. We wouldn't treat an, an animal this way. Why is it, why is it just and usual punishment for, punishment well, well, here's for the us. issue. Not to interrupt you, no, William. No, go ahead. Sorry. The dogs in this country are treated better. Animals, activists, will march on Capitol Hill. For the rights of dogs and animals not to be treated cruelty. It is a crime to harm animals without cause in this country. It's a crime. Did someone explain to me how do we get away with treating human beings worse? And the animals where lobbyists and activists will, will march on Capitol Hill, go to senators' offices, and the members of Congress and say, we need to protect our animals, our wildlife. We need, we need to protect them. And to harm certain animals or birds is a felony. Automatically. Where has America lost her way? You, you talk a lot about behind the walls. Uh, the prison system don't allow anyone and everyone just to see what's going on behind the walls. Uh, prisoners not, are not believed. So if a prisoner says something, you know, they're making it up because they want to get out. So everything is so hidden. Uh, it's not exposed. And then uh, when they do do visits, uh, the visits are, you know, pretty much mocked. I mean, they prepare for the visit, and so when they get there, it, everything looks good. So the problem is, is that you got this this secret society that's behind the wall that has the power to do anything and everything. And as we were talking about earlier, when we were talking about health care, you know, not even giving them health care, telling them to pray. That made me think about, you know, the Geneva Convention, and we talked about this before. Even our enemies, prisoners of war, who have killed our soldiers, they have rights. 
you you will give them help, you will feed them, you will house them, and then if you try to do anything against them and, and it's not during a, a, a actual battle scenario, you could be charged. Yes. And go to prison. So it's sad to say that we treat our enemies better than we treat our citizens. Well, and it's just sad to say. I think the problem is the stereotype is that these people deserve whatever they get. Uh, it is a culture issue. This is a culture that has made its way to our criminal justice system. And the problem, I believe, which, is, which stands above most that I understand, is that there are no consequences to the treatment of these prisoners. There are no consequences. I don't, and I don't believe the people in the Rainey case, William, correct me if I'm wrong, they were never charged with a crime. No, no. It looks like I was actually just looking. Um, they, one of them, the warden, I believe, experienced, uh, had administrative leave, and the other one was fired. No, administrative leave says I get paid. I get paid. He got a paid so, leave, and that's it. Well, that's it. And so, you know, when you really look at this stuff, it, it's, it's amazing. One of the things I was looking at here is, you know, these people, they, they I guess, I don't want to say these people. Some of these guards... Some of those guards, they're on these power trips, and they're and they, they're like you pointed out, they want to affl- inflict a level of punishment that they deem is right over what the what the courts have said that is the punishment. But one of the things I was looking at here is that most of these people that are in prison, there's a significant amount of them that experience that are going through some kind of mental illness, and they have not been properly do- diagnosed or maybe properly treated. So what it was talking about was. It says, as a result, two million people with mental illness are booked into jails each year. Nearly 15% of of men and of women are booked into jails, have a serious mental health condition. Now, when you look at that and you got people that don't care, they don't care for your health, their well-being, they're dealing with somebody that needs help. But they, in turn, are being so cruel. So, and, and, and again, to the point of this, this is accepted behavior that would not even be allowed for on an animal. The question is, why is it accepted? Because yeah, that's true. the culture of this nation, most people believe, now until it hits you on your front door, people think, well, these people deserve it. The Department of Corrections in every state, the Federal Bureau, uh, the, the, the Bureau of Prisons covering and overseeing the federal prison system, give this false illusion, this false presentation. If you go to any website for any prison in this country, you know what you're going to find? You'll see people in the visiting room with laughs on their faces, and they're sitting back enjoying time with their family, and and. Nutrition, nutritious meals uh, and dining available to your loved one during his or her incarceration. It might as well be an infomercial, but nothing could be further from the truth. Because in reality, when you see these folks on these websites, and it looks like they got a tray of nutritious food, and they're sitting back, and your loved one visitation means everything to the Department of Corrections. I got news for you. Don't get a loved one locked up. 
You better find out that's the biggest joke within the Department of Corrections. There are food boxes in the kitchens that say not fit for human consumption. They're not posting that on their website. Spoiled milk, spoils all of those things, you know. It is a disgrace. But how is it, and that's the topic of this show, the reason there's not an outcry because it, it has become the norm. It has become usual punishment. That's the way it is. Let's play a clip right now for some of the stories. They call it the craziest prison abuse, abuse stories that you could hear. Take a listen. Welcome to World's Best Videos. We've compiled the list of the craziest prison abuse stories. Let's get into it. Psychological abuse. Richard Mayer was locked up in Dade Correctional Institute Mental Health of September 2013. Mayer hung himself. In his suicide note, he accused prison guards of punishing inmates with starvation. The officers also forced them to fight and place bets on the winners. Mayer also claimed sexual assaults by prison employees. He said that one asked Mare to strip out of his clothes and touch himself in exchange for cigarettes. Mare had been raped in the past. In his suicide note, he claimed that the officer also knew it. Mare suggested that he was in the mental health unit to get help for his depression and suicidal tendencies, all of which were worsened by recent sexual assault. He was slammed against the wall when he refused to get advice from the lieutenant, then told to keep his mouth shut. Ignoring cries for help. Rick Martin was incarcerated in Florida's Santa Rosa Correctional Institution. After a few hours, prison workers forced Martin into a cell with an inmate known for getting into violent altercations with others. He was found dead. In March 2012, guards had found Rick beaten to a pulp. He was found with the skull smashed and his body was black and blue. Apparently, he had been restrained and strangled with ribbons of torn fabric. The scrubs that Martin wore were soaked in blood and pulled over his head, maybe indicating rape. He begged to be moved to a new cell out of fear for his life. There were witnesses that the report hearing the screams and the thuds. There's evidence that the inmate Sean Jigaman Rogers had used a sock stuffed with batteries. The same witnesses recall that Rogers had jumped on Martin's head multiple times, smashing it into the concrete floor. Despite their repeated cries for help, the prison staff failed to respond until it was too late. Inmates pleaded with officers to assist Martin during the attack. Video taking during the incident shows a guard glancing inside the cell during the attack, but ultimately refusing to come to Martin's aid. Scalding showers. It all started with a shower. In 2012, Darren Rainey, who was schizophrenic, had defecated in the cell. Harriet Krakowski, a former counselor at the Dade Correctional Institution, asked the guard how they were going to deal with Rainey. The guard calmly assured her, oh, don't worry, we'll put him in the shower. The counselor thought it was a good thing. Krakowski learned that the guards had locked Rainey in a small stall and showered him by force with a hose. Only the guards, not Rainey, were able to control the water temperature. Prison authorities boiled Darren Rainey to death when they were forced him to take a two-hour shower and scalding water that was 82 degrees Celsius. The water was hot enough to cook ramen soup. Due to the shower was so small, there was nothing Rainey could do to escape the scalding water. 
Inmates reported that Rainey had screamed for help during the two-hour torture session. Rainey, who was serving a sentence for cocaine possession and nonviolent offense, was cooked like a lobster. According to Rainey's fellow inmates, Rainey was not the first person who had been locked in the shower under these conditions. However, he was the first to die. Well, there you have it. Going back to Darren Rainey, two hours of screaming for his life. Not one correctional officer came forward. Not one officer said, stop. They're all complicit in his death. And you're telling me, and make no mistake about it, not one charge, not one arrest. I promise you, if I went to anybody's house, and forced them to stay in a shower until they died from the scolding water, I would be in prison today. No doubt, probably for life. Because that's murder. How is it that there is a different standard of justice in this country when it comes to the criminal justice system? How is that possible? And not one person in the prison is charged with a crime. Well, how is that possible? You, you know, it, it's it's amazing because even that officer who later later resigned. Uh, last reports is that he is a police officer, a patrol officer in Miami Garden Police Department. So he leaves the de- the murder scene. He resigns. He leaves. We don't have the option to, to run. If we leave the state, guess what? There's an all-points bulletin warrant issued for my arrest across the United States to try to capture me. This man can resign his position and become a peace officer after boiling a man to death. But that's the norm. That is what we call cruel and usual punishment. Yeah, Lamont, I think what it is, again, going back to the whole situation is like, again, to, to make it, you know, somewhat even palatable for society, they dehumanize these guys. They, they completely make it seem like they're just a bunch of wild animals. They have to be caged up. They have to be beaten. They have to be, you know, tortured enough just, just to make them, you know, you know, comply like it. But the fact of the matter is, is that that's the view that they give to the American public. And then behind the wall, we all know that, yes, not all COs, not all prison guards, all this, we're, they're not all bad. But I guarantee you that the ones that aren't bad are highly outnumbered to the point they probably fear for their own life or career. Sure. Absolutely. Because these guys, you know, they're going to cover for each other. They, you know, that they're going to you know, do whatever they have to do to try and get their buddies out of, out of trouble. And to William's point, some guy getting a chance to resign and go right back into the exact same job, you're just putting him in a pool with different victims. That's all you're doing. Now, instead of the fact that, you know, okay, all the people that he's going to pick on or torture or whatever like that, they're, you know, behind bars. Now he, he's basically what he says, he's a patrol officer. He's a beat cop. Yes, 
what, yeah. Yeah, so it's essentially he's going to see somebody doing something out there on the street. He's going to give himself a reason, and he's going to go right off again. And they're not going to do anything because he's wearing a badge. And this guy needed, like, medical treatment. I mean, he was having a psychotic episode. So why did that deserve a death sentence? And it's, it's sad because someone made the judgment call that this man needed to die for something he really did to himself. It, I mean, he didn't harm anyone else. But those prison, uh, those uh, correctional officers just figured, you know, this guy needs a death sentence. Let's give him one. And, that, and that's the coolest part about this is just human life is treated as nothing. Just because you're behind bars, it's like you're not a, you're not a, a human anymore to these people. But here's the problem. You have county jails where people have simply been accused of a crime. They haven't been convicted of anything. That's right. They're innocent. The presumption, which is, again, this train left the station years ago. The presumption of innocence. I am innocent until convicted or proven guilty in a court of law. How is it then people die in that process? They're not guilty of anything. That's true. Khalif Browder, a prime example of a young man that lost his life, never convicted. But it was usual punishment at Rikers Island to do what they did to this young man. Play the clip. Well, we end today's show with the tragic news that Khalif Browder has committed suicide. He was a young New York student who spent three years in Rikers Island jail without being convicted of a crime. On Saturday, Khalif took his own life at his home in the Bronx. He was 22 years old. In 2010, when he was just 16, he was sent to Rikers Island without trial on suspicion of stealing a backpack. Earlier this year, the New Yorker obtained explosive video showing the violence to which Khalif was subjected to there. Surveillance camera footage shows him being abused on two separate occasions. In one clip from 2012, the teenager is seen inside Rikers Central Punitive Segregation Unit, better known as the Bing. As a guard escorts Khalif to the showers, uh, he, uh, Khalif appears to speak, and then the guard suddenly violently hurls him to the floor, although he's already handcuffed. Uh, in a separate video clip from 2010, Khalif is attacked by almost a dozen other teenage inmates after he punches a gang member who spat in his face. The other inmates pile onto Khalif and pummel him until guards finally intervene. Khalif's case led to calls for reforming New York's criminal justice system. On the night of his arrest years ago, Khalif Browder was walking home from a party with his friends in the Bronx May 15, 2010, when he was stopped by police based on a tip that he had robbed someone weeks earlier. He told HuffPost Live what happened next. They had searched me and the guy actually said, at first he said I robbed him and I didn't have anything on me. And that's you when say he, nothing, you mean no weapon and none of his no property? No weapon, no money, anything he said that I allegedly robbed him for. So the guy actually changed up his story and said that I actually tried to rob him, and then another police officer came and they said that that um, I robbed him two weeks prior, and then they said we're going to take you to the precinct, and most likely we're going to let you go home, and then I never went home. That's right. Khalif Browder did not return home for 33 months, almost three years, even though he was never tried or convicted. 
For nearly 800 days of that time, he was held in solitary confinement. He maintained his innocence, requested a trial, but was only offered plea deals while the trial was repeatedly delayed. Near the end of his time in jail, the judge offered to sentence him to time served if he entered a guilty plea and told him he could face 15 years in prison if he was convicted. He refused to accept the plea deal, was only released when the case was dismissed. We're joined once again by Jennifer Gonnerman, reporter, author, contributing editor at New Yorker magazine. She was the first to report Khalif's suicide in her obituary for the New Yorker magazine on Sunday. She first recounted Khalif Browder's story last year in her article, Before the Law, a boy was accused of taking a backpack the courts took the next three years of his life. Welcome back to Democracy Now! Is it fair to say that the courts and the prison system actually took his life? You know, I don't know what was going through Khalif's mind in those last few minutes, but it's without a doubt that he was um, completely traumatized by those three years that you talked about when he was trapped on Rikers Island, uh, despite never having been convicted of a crime, brutalized by um, officers and fellow inmates alike, as your, you know, as your viewers saw in that video footage that you guys showed. Now, he had attempted suicide while in jail numerous times as well and after coming out could you talk about that whole experience and process of what he what he told you about that certainly he um, spent <clears throat> about two years in solitary confinement on Rikers Island and attempted to end his life several times while he was there and um, described some of those incidents for me and I wrote about some of it in the New Yorker and then after he was released he was um, Released in 2013, several months later, he again made another very serious suicide attempt and spent about a week in a psychiatric hospital. And and yet, um, he tried, you know, every day to kind of beat back the nightmares um, and, and sort of transcend what he had lived through and, and make up for all this lost time. And he was, you know, in, in recent months, he was enrolled in college at Bronx Community College, and he was doing well. His uh, I spoke to somebody there yesterday. He had a 3.5 GPA for this semester, which is extraordinary. I mean, he lost his junior year and his senior year of high school while he was locked up. So sort of every day he was sort of grappling with sort of trying to, you know, move past what he had endured, but I guess the trauma was too much. I want to turn back to Khalif Browder in his own words. In this December 2013 interview with HuffPost Live's Mark Lamont Hill, Browder talked about his suicide attempts at Rikers and his efforts to get psychiatric help. I would say I committed suicide about five to six, five or six times. Okay, you attempted suicide five to six times? Yes. While all, while, all while still in prison? Yes. Wow. And I, I, I try. I tried to resort to telling the correction officers that I wanted to um, see a psychiatrist or a counselor, something. I was telling them I need mental help because I wasn't feeling right. All, all the stress from my case, everything was just getting to me, and I just, I just couldn't take it. I just needed somebody to talk to. I needed to just let, let, let. I just needed to be. I just needed to talk and be stress free. But the correction officers, they didn't want to hear me out. Nobody wanted to listen. That is Khalif Browder. Now again, he went to jail when he was 16 years old, never was tried. He was, the judge said he could get out if he just pled out. And he said, no, I'm not guilty. And that moment actually happened. He had been locked up for you know, over two and a half years at that moment. So he had gone through all this incredible trauma and was given a chance to walk out the door. And almost anybody would take that opportunity, just put in the guilty plea to anything just to get home. He refused. He said, I did nothing wrong. And he just wanted that trial. He hung himself on Saturday? Yeah. If there's uh, any positive uh, 
sense of that can come out of this. It's the reforms that have uh, have resulted, uh, not only from his experience, but from your chronicling of his experience. Could you talk about what the city of New York has tried to do in, in recent months to reform, especially how it handles juveniles uh, in the in its jail system? You know, there's been a number of reforms uh, or attempts at reforms in recent months. Um, at the end of last year, the mayor eliminated solitary confinement for or juvenile offenders on Rikers Island. Because uh, of Kalei? I think that was part of it. That wasn't the only contributing factor. I mean, the New York Times has been doing very aggressive coverage about the outrages on Rikers Island. Um, but Mayor Bill de Blasio did cite uh, Khalif's case a couple months ago when he talked about a new initiative to try to speed up court cases, especially in the Bronx, but across the city. And that sort of excessive court delays that have been going on, that was part of the reason he spent so much time in jail. They're trying to address that. Now, whether these reforms are going to lead to a lasting change, I don't know. I mean, we can only sort of hope that, that you know, that uh, his death is not in vain and that real systemic change happens. As we just briefly said what happened to him in jail, aside from just being jailed at all, these videos that came out that we had you on for when they came out very unusual to get a video from inside a guard taking him down uh, the other prisoners beating him up I mean it almost defies belief you know he had told me from the first moment I met him stories about being abused on Rikers Island um, and I never doubted him for a moment but I think as an outsider it's almost impossible to believe what he lived through and when you see it on those videos I mean it was disturbing to watch those videos several months ago when we put them online but to watch them now in the wake of what happened I mean it's almost it, it's just it's so much it's just unbelievable and you reviewed the videos with him uh, before deciding whether to publish them right. or post them or not what was could you talk about his reaction seeing seeing the or reliving it through the through the video as well the, what yeah, happened to him yeah you know the from the first moment I met him he said Jen you have to get that video from September 23rd 2012 when this officer sort of threw me to the ground and assaulted me and I thought, how am I going to get that video? And then I thought, how does he know the exact date? You know, and he remembered he had an incredible recall for details and dates and for what had happened to him. And he knew that this assault had happened right on camera. And I sat next to him and he watched it um, a few months ago. And, you know, on the one hand, it's like incredibly disturbing to watch. And on the other hand, he was gratified that finally people were going to know exactly what happened to him. Um, and it was just... You know, it was, the whole thing is just so, so disturbing, it's almost beyond words. Was he suing the New York City system? Yeah. He, he, he has been for, you know, um, almost two years, had a lawsuit against New York City, against the Department of Corrections, the district attorney, for his case, hoping to get some justice. And like his criminal case, his civil case has been dragging on and on. And he's been through, you know, many days of depositions, which essentially means sitting in a room with city lawyers and being grilled about exactly what happened, including being grilled about his suicide attempts on Rikers Island. So he is survived by his mom, uh, and could you talk about his family? You spent this weekend a number of hours there. His family is, is his very... His mother is who found him. Right. His family is very private and um, didn't want to, you know, be public or talk publicly about what happened. But as you can imagine, is, is completely, appeared to be completely devastated and confused and angry, as you would imagine, you know, by, by, this, by this tragedy. And was he under under treatment for uh, depression, or was he on was he had, had prescription drugs as a result of his his uh, numerous uh, suicide attempts? Yeah, no, he was he was uh, had some was getting some treatment and was on um, medication at the time and had been for many months. 
Well, Jennifer Gonerman, your work in introducing the world to Khalif is so important, and I'm so sad that we have lost him now at the age of 22. Jennifer Gonerman is staff writer for The New Yorker magazine. She was the first to report uh, Khalif Browder's suicide in her obituary for him in The New Yorker on Sunday. That's, that's one of the largest tragedies. How do you threaten a 16-year-old boy with 15 years of time for stealing a backpack? Allegedly, let me say that. Allegedly, if he, a backpack will cost you all of 12, 14 bucks if it's a nice one. And you began to slowly kill this young man. Byron Pitts, a reporter at CBS News, did a story on Khalif Browder. We're going to listen to that and hear what that has to say. We're going to discuss it. We turn now to another tragic story about a young man who learned the hard way about the troubles plaguing America's criminal justice system. Khalif Browner was arrested at 16, never convicted of a crime, never had a trial, but spent more than three years in one of the most violent jails in the country. Tonight, here is Khalif in his own words. You're supposed, you're supposed to be innocent until proven guilty, but the way the system is, is you're guilty until proven innocent. Little did we know Khalif Browder was already dying inside the day we met him. At the easy age of 22, he'd already learned more about America's criminal justice system and endured more than any soul should ever have to. That's Khalif there on the floor inside Rikers Island, New York City's most notorious jail, beaten by a gang of fellow inmates all caught on campus. At the age of 16, he was arrested and sent here for allegedly stealing a backpack. It was like, how long earth? We were beaten, stomped. By the, by the correctional officers, and they were just beating on me. They were just beating on me. Beatings captured on surveillance video obtained by the New Yorker magazine, which first brought Khalif's story to light. In this video, we see him being escorted to the prison shower. He appears to speak to the guard, who in seconds is seen slamming him into a wall and then to the ground. And I cry myself to sleep because it's like, I want to go home, and it's like, they're not letting me go home. To go home, Khalif's mother, Benita Browder, needed to post bail of $3,000, money she said she just didn't have. What was your reaction when you heard that your 16-year-old boy was being sent to Rikers Island? My heart dropped. You know, I had heard so many horror stories about Rikers, and all I could picture was him getting hurt in there. Court records show Khalif had attempted suicide at least six times, spent 1,110 days behind bars, more than 800 of those in solitary confinement. His court date postponed more than 30 times. He endured all this having never been given a trial, never convicted of a crime. Finally, in June of 2013, all charges against Khalif were dismissed. But his experience exposed the troubled criminal justice system and the brutality of life behind bars. I think at some point, almost a reckless disregard by the prosecutors in this case. They didn't care, Byron. 
They saw his file. They saw that he was in jail. And he'd probably take a plea. And they were hoping he'd take a plea. They just told me that if I plead guilty, I would release from jail that same day. But I didn't do it. You're not going to make me say I did something just so I could go home. When we first met him November of last year, he was doing better, he said. Earned his GED. Started classes at Bronx Community College. Pulling a 3.56 GPA. But the psychological trauma from jail had taken its toll. And when he first came home, he would just walk the four corners of the driveway. You hear animals do that have been confined to a space. Yes, he did it. And I had to watch my baby go through all of that. In the last year, Khalif grew depressed, deeply paranoid. You know, deep down, I'm a mess. I feel like I'm a grown old man. And then two Saturdays ago, two years after his release from jail, Khalif Browder hanged himself with an air conditioner cord in his home in the Bronx. He was 22. I didn't know what to do. I, can you imagine finding your son and he's hanging with his head back? Khalif's death made national news and messages of outrage mixed with sympathy flooded social media. John Legend wrote in an op-ed that New York failed Khalif. Lena Dunham Instagrammed his photo and called for reform. Our interview with Khalif went viral on Facebook. What we now know is that Khalif was due in court to face new charges of disorderly conduct the week he took his own life. His family said he was scared to go back into jail. By now, the beatings he endured in Rikers have been seen millions of times online. What did Rikers do to your son? It destroyed him. It destroyed him mentally. Has anyone apologized to you from Rikers? No. From the prosecutor's office? No. What do you hope happens now? I want them to be responsible, to admit that it was their fault that my son is dead. He spent three years in, in hell. It sounds like you're in that hell now. I will be in hell until the day I die because I found my son hanging. If your child is murdered, you, you have a, an immediate anger towards that person and you want that person found, you know, and, and pay for what they did to your child. It's not one person. It's a whole system that destroyed my son. And I want them all to pay. I deeply wish we hadn't lost him, but he did not die in vain. New York did away with solitary confinement for 16 and 17-year-olds. Plans were announced to fix crowded dockets in courts to ensure the right to a speedy trial. There are also calls for change to the cash bail system. Currently, only 12% of defendants in New York City make bail. We're in a quest for justice right now, Byron. Paul Prestia, who helped Khalif file his civil suit against the city, says it's not enough. The reforms are all nice and well, but admit you did something wrong here, because that was always Khalif's message. How many young men have to go through this? 99% of the critics will talk all that junk. I promise you, they wouldn't have the courage to do the job that the correction officers do. Bernie Carrick knows the system from both sides. The former chief of the New York City Police Department, he also ran Rikers Island for years. And as a convicted felon, he spent time in solitary confinement. As someone that spent 60 days inside solitary confinement, it creates paranoia. It makes you insane. But he cautions the city against bowing to public pressure and implementing changes, he says, that could put Rikers correction officers and inmates in danger. If you take solitary confinement away from the correction officials 
you're going to see a major, major increase in violence. These are kids that come from gangs. These are kids that ran the streets, I think is very dangerous. So what would you do? What, what were think, your suggestions to improve I think, Rikers Island? I think you keep that. You charge the staff that violate the law, and they're locked up. It's not hard to imagine the life he might have led if he had made it. I have the medal hanging on my bed. You see it in the remnants of the life and the people he left behind, like Elizabeth Pyams, program director at Bronx Community College, who worked closely with Khalif. She says she's working on getting Khalif his associate degree posthumously. It's real. <laughs> what do you want the world to remember of your son? To remember him for the stand-up person that he was. He was a good person. The kind of person who turned down a plea bargain on principle, whose story may help save others like him. If I would have just been guilty, then my story would have been never been heard. Nobody would have took the time to listen to me. I'd have been just another criminal. A tragedy beyond words. Khalif Browder simply gone too soon from a criminal justice system that failed. But we call it usual punishment. It is sanctioned. To this day, no one has been charged in the death of Khalif Browder. And to the guards that assaulted him in Rikers Island, to the inmates there that chimed in with their assault. Not one person charged. Khalif Browder is one of many that have suffered from the normacy of cruelty in America's justice system. Joining us on the other side of the break, Casey Monaco. She has a story to tell. This is AJC Radio. We'll be right back. Here are 50 white guys. Here are 50 black guys. Here's how many white guys can expect to go to prison in their lifetime. The chances amount to one out of 17. Now here's how many black guys can expect the same thing. The chances are one out of three. Why? Lots of reasons. It's complicated. But one thing is clear, there's racial bias at every level of the criminal justice system. When blacks and whites commit the same kind of crimes, blacks are more likely to be arrested. Once arrested, they're more likely to be convicted. Once convicted, they're more likely to serve longer sentences. Look at the numbers in America's so-called war on drugs. About 14% of American drug users are black, as are about a quarter of drug sellers. Yet blacks are 34% of the people arrested for drug crimes. And those convicted of drug crimes, 46% are black. By the time we factor in sentencing, there are actually more black drug offenders than white ones in state prisons and in federal prisons. In the end, the incarceration rate for drug crimes is 10 times higher for blacks than it is for whites. These are the facts. Racial disparity in America's war on drugs is one big reason that one out of three black men can expect to go to prison in their lifetime. 
Bard police officer who shot and killed a man. When I first saw the Oscar Grant footage, like a lot of people here in Oakland, I was outraged. As soon as I heard about it and I went online and I seen what had happened, tears came down my eyes. It was something that was very alarming as a police officer and as a citizen of Oakland. It was like such a blatant murder. You have a city in trauma. Anyone that's seen that and looks at it is in trauma. My hope is that people will express their concern with police brutality, but they will do so in constructive ways that don't include violence. We cannot perpetrate this cycle of harm and violence in this community. Because we do have to live here and they terrorize the city and it's only going to make it worse for us. They killed our young black 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 black. You, can, you, can. you can protest, you can try to make a change, but there is a positive way you can do it. And make sure we let the police know and that we're aware that stuff ain't right out here. We're trying to fix it. In a way that is about using your voice for justice and making Oakland a safer place for everyone to live and get along as one. Violence is not just Violence is not justice. Violence is not justice. Violence is not justice. I wanted to be in the military since I was, since I was a kid. I served in the United States Air Force. I served a total of 16 years. I was deployed uh, 13 times. On my second deployment, four bombs hit my vehicle. And at 19 years old, that's the first time I ever saw somebody die. Coming back, I was raging. I started having pretty horrible nightmares. I would wake up in the middle of the night, sweats. I started drinking a lot. I felt worthless. I guess I never recognized it in myself. Eventually, one day, I just walked into the VA hospital and said I'd like to see somebody. Don't suffer alone. You got to find that link with somebody that'll make you let it go. It all starts with going to the VA. There's a whole community of veterans that just want to help you out. So the guys who couldn't come back, so you owe it to them to live well, because they're not here with their families. Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen, to AJC Radio tonight. As we have discussed, this is going to be a little bit of a series here that cannot be told in one show, probably two shows or three shows. This is a tragedy, and no matter how many times you hear it, it hits home. Khalif Browder gone, one of many that have suffered abuse within the criminal justice system. We're going to get into this over the next few weeks. Uh, we anticipate having the author uh, and uh, William, the author's name for usual cruelty. Sorry. Uh, we, we, Kara, excuse me, I'm sorry. So the, the author's name is Kara Cassentis. Alec. Alec. Kara Cassentis is going to be joining us. We're trying to track, uh, get with him to discuss his book on the other side. But as, going, as we go through this show tonight, there's a lot of information to cover here and a lot of thought-provoking information of how did we as a nation get here in our criminal justice system. And we wonder and we ask the question, why is the country or why have they lost confidence in this system? Khalif Browder being one of many. 
So please tune in to us. Folks, feel free to dial in tonight, 646-200-0628, 646-200-0628. Right now, it's my pleasure to introduce Casey Monaco, uh, who I had the privilege of talking to a couple of weeks ago, and she has a lot to say. And right now, we are happy to be joined by her. Cassie, are you with us? I am with you. Thank you so much for having me. You're very welcome. It's quite a privilege. Thank you, and it's our honor as well. Um, I don't know how much of the show you've heard thus far, um, as we are talking about a cruel and usual punishment within the criminal justice Mm -hmm. system. And that behavior has been sanctioned by this country, by our criminal justice system, because nothing is being done. Uh, considerably or significantly that causes correctional officers within the county jail and federal prisons when we hear the stories like Khalif Browder. And I'm, gonna, I'm just going to give you the floor. Uh, it's, it's Casey, right? It's, it's actually Cassie, but that's Cassie, okay. okay. It's Thank you before. for <laughs> okay. Thank yeah. you. And again, uh, a few weeks ago when we had an opportunity to talk, it was my pleasure to mm-hmm. talk to you hear your thoughts. Oh, mine too. I'm going to give you the floor here to introduce yourself to our listeners and uh, give us your thoughts on this topic and how you can, how you are directly impacted by this. Go ahead, please. Okay. Well, thank you. First of all, thank you very much for having me. And I am Cassie Monaco. I am the founder and president of A Day Closer. A Day Closer is a nonprofit organization um, whose mission it is to reduce recidivism by keeping families who have a loved one incarcerated connected. Yeah. And let me tell you, I became an advocate about four years ago. I was one of the people, Dan, how unjust our justice system is and what is happening once one of our citizens is incarcerated. What happens once they enter prison or jail? And to me, um, cruel and unusual punishment Mm -hmm. begins the moment somebody enters prison. You know, it starts out by stripping um, one of their dignity and being referred to now as inmate. You're no longer a person. You're inmate. You're a number. And then also, you know, whatever other degrading um, what of the day they're using for the people entering um, our prison systems? Mm-hmm. And then you have the strip searches. And prison is meant as a consequence to um, an action that we've committed a crime. But losing your dignity and losing your life and being tortured is not a part of that consequence. Our Eighth Amendment is still in effect, and it is being violated every single day. And I was uh, sitting here waiting um, to come on. I I was listening about Khalif. And um, these stories are so hard 
to digest. And the mother was talking about how her son was destroyed. The whole family is destroyed. They will live with this forever. The consequence will continue on forever. They will never be able to live a, a, a full life. What happened yeah. to their son will haunt forever. Well, I think in one sense, um, I remember on the story that the mother said she heard a banging against the wall. Mm-hmm. This air conditioning unit was on the side of the house. Uh, and as she sat there in her living room, she kept hearing this bang, 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 only to realize it was her son hanging by that cord. Oh, jeez. How do you get that out of your mind? Our concern is how did we get here that we call this usual punishment? We we justify in some way that this was okay. That's a problem. And uh, for a yes, go ahead, go ahead. I'm sorry. No, 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 no. I was just going to say, how is that justified? Everything about this, I, I can't say it's not right, but everything about it is wrong. Everything about it is wrong. How do we get to a point? Of pure, it's, it's not even punishment. It's absolute torture. Our system is meant to be rehabilitative, not strictly punitive or losing their lives. Mothers and fathers are losing their sons and daughters, and, and, and people are losing their parents and children every day. Yes. And yes. we, it, it feels like, our society has become so it's either, they're either desensitized by it or they just don't know that this actually happens every single day. And uh, Cassie, I actually explained that Khalif, Brow- Khalif Browder was in county lockup. Mm-hmm. He was never charged with a crime. Right. So it's wrong even if he had been charged. What happened to this young man is uncomprehendable. It's unimaginable. But he was never. Yeah. And we're talking about a backpack. Mm-hmm. A backpack. This man suffered all that he suffered on the accusation that he stole a backpack, which he was never convicted of that. That's not even considered a misdemeanor. That's that's under it's, a petty theft. That's exactly it, right. It cost him his life. I'm going to play a clip for you, Cassie. I want you to hear. Okay. I want to get mm-hmm. your thoughts. Let's hear the clip. Get your hands behind your back, girl. Don't miss the face. Don't clear. Clear. 
to gather myself right now um, to hear that pleading. Yes. I don't understand how any human being can possibly do that to another human being. How is that even possible? Did we not hear those, those, those pleas? Well, what's tragic here He was scared for his life for no reason. Yes. On the video, he kept saying to the officer, to the sheriff, this is county jail. And he kept saying, I can't breathe. Mm -hmm. He was labored in his breathing. And he started, the fear showed itself because he said, I'm sorry. Because he felt outnumbered. He felt outnumbered. This is why there needs to be an outcry about this. That man's family, he he wasn't convicted of anything. He wasn't convicted of a crime. And they put him back in his cell and let him die alone there on the floor. Not one charge, not one arrest for the loss of life here. This is why this show is doing what we do. Yeah, and, and thank you for that. Yes. Wait, how how do how does one human being get to that point where they think it's okay to do this to another human being? What type of program yes. or training? Do these correctional officers go through that say that torturing and beating somebody and and virtually murdering somebody is okay? It's it's something 
I don't have the words. I don't have the explanation. Because you think somewhere along the way, accountability sets in here. That man on the video was pleading for his life. Just as Darren Rainey was in Florida when the guards locked him in that shower. What was the, what was yeah. the temperature of that shower? They boiled him to death. They, they, they boiled yes. him to death. And laughed about they it. They boiled the man to death. Yes. It's sadistic. And then they leave people go home at night and go home and have dinner with their family. Yes. It's, it's, Everything about this is wrong, and I don't understand why, why this is not an outrage. I mean, it's an outrage to you and I, and and you know, to all you know, all of us that that see it and are advocating. But where are our government officials? Where are our legislators saying this is wrong? We should we should be hearing their voices. It, it, it's that simple. Um, we get outraged when we turn on the news and see that someone was killed or uh, an Uber driver yes. kidnaps a lady and takes her life. We're outraged. We say, how is that possible? He needs to pay for this or pay for that. We get outraged, as we should, when a young lady is raped by a Stanford University student. We are outraged. Exactly, but, but when one of our women citizens that's incarcerated gets raped by a correctional officer who's supposed to be there for her safety also rapes her and impregnates her right and then all of a sudden a baby's growing inside of her and she's forced to have this baby Mm -hmm. and then when it's asked who is the father what is she supposed to do? So now she's held accountable by the other correctional officers and is deep over and over and over. She asked for an abortion when she first found out she was pregnant. And this is also Florida. Mm. And the state of Florida said no because taxpayers' money don't go for that. So she's forced to have this baby. And when the, her rapist is convicted, mm-hmm. she's beaten over and over again. Yeah. And she's serving a 25, I believe a 20, 25 year sentence for burglary in an um, unoccupied building. And her rapist is serving three years. Yeah, that, that's uncomprehendable. Cassie, we're going to take a quick break. Um, I want to get into what you do as you are in the field of, in the world of advocates. Uh, we all come together to try to make a difference. Uh, that means we're family in our quest for justice. Right on. I want to hear. Amen your position, some of the things you're doing as you hear this. Uh, understand you are in Washington, D.C. once a month uh, addressing mm-hmm. issues. Yeah. We're going to talk about that and because except we as advocates stand 
against wrong, well, we might as well take the advocate name off the door because you cease to be that, at least a true advocate. Um, ladies and gentlemen, feel free to dial in to 646-200-0628, 646-200-0628. Feel free to join this conversation. We're going to be right back. Cassie Monaco, she has a lot more to say. This is AJC Radio. We'll be right back. Congress shall make no law abridging the freedom of speech. Do you know what this means? Do you? It means you can voice your opinion without censorship or restraint. It means you can say nothing at all. It means you can debate, protest, question, contribute, whenever, wherever. Take it. Embrace it. Say it out loud. Sergeant Michelle Garcia served meritoriously in Iraq and has the medals to prove it. Soon after leaving the Navy, Lieutenant Chris Scott found a job, a home, and started a family of his own. Corpsman Richard Stokely took the skills he learned in Vietnam and put them to good use as a paramedic. But soon after leaving the military, each of these veterans fell on hard times and faced homelessness. Even after Michelle lost all her savings, even after Chris wasn't able to pay his mortgage, and even after Richard battled alcoholism for years, they each reached out for help when they needed it most. A simple phone call put them in touch with a trained professional from the Department of Veterans Affairs. That call got Michelle a place to stay until she could afford one of her own, put Chris in touch with employment assistance, and found Richard a substance abuse program. These veterans are success stories not only for how they were able to help others while serving their country, but for how they were able to let others help them. If you know of or are a veteran in need, make the call. I'm a mother. I'm a father. I'm a sister. A registered nurse. I serve my country in the United States military. I'm your neighbor. I sit next to you at church. And my child was arrested. Held in custody. Questioned without my knowledge. Exposed to violence. Witnessed to rape. Placed in solitary confinement. Unable to call or see me. Shackled to a wall. Beaten. Sentenced as an adult at age 17. Sentenced as an adult at age 16. Sentenced as an adult at age 15. We felt lost. Isolated. Ostracized. Misjudged. Terrified. And in the absence of all hope. My child took his own life. And then I found the Alliance for Youth Justice. They gave me the support and resources to get through one of the most difficult times in my life. Now I know I'm not alone. And neither are you. Now we have a voice. Now we, we have, have power. power. In numbers. In numbers. In numbers. We, we can, can make a difference. There are approximately two million children in the juvenile and criminal justice system in this country. These are the faces of those families. If you are the family member of a child who has been in the justice system, or if you are someone who supports this movement and is ready to make a difference, visit the Campaign for Youth Justice at www.campaignforyouthjustice.org. Do you have a big brother? Well, I have a big brother, and I'm pretty sure that you and I experience some of the same things with a big brother. Big brothers will always be big brothers, right? I'm sure you'll agree. Well, my brother gets up in the morning. He takes a shower, heads to work, and at some point during the day, he's going to exercise and 
get that workout, as we all do. And, of course, depending on what's going on, he's going to sit down for two or three meals during the course of his day. And also, depending on what else is going on, he'll probably get caught up on current events and maybe take a few moments to turn a page in a book. How about your big brother? Some of the same stuff, right? Oh, did I mention that my big brother does all of that stuff? But he actually has to have permission a lot of times before he can do it. You see, my big brother was wrongfully convicted of a crime that he did not commit. That's right. That may sound shocking, huh? He's in prison. Wrongful convictions impacts families in ways you cannot begin to imagine. But I've decided that I'm going to do something about it. And I extend an invitation to you to come on board and join me in this fight. You see, I'm helping to be a voice for my big brother and others who have been wrongfully convicted. We'd like you to take a few moments today and call a just cause where we fight for justice. You can call us toll free at one 855 529-4252. That's 1-855-529-4252. Join with us as we fight for justice and for all big brothers across the land. Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen, to AJC Radio tonight. The call-in number is 646-200-0628. 646-200-0628. We have been having a discussion tonight that is troubling at best. We find ourselves in situations here that we as human beings are forced to look at. It's easy for society to turn and look away and say, that doesn't concern me. But for every person that is abused behind the wall, that could be me. That could be my brother, my sister, my mother or my father, anyone could suffer at the hands of injustice. Martin Luther King made the statement, injustice anywhere is injustice everywhere. We have been honored tonight to have Cassie Monaco on this program as she has chimed in in this conversation. I am touched and moved by her sincere response. That she gave us tonight And we appreciate her being on the show with us To give information And her thoughts on such a very difficult subject to have And Cassie, thank you so much uh, For being part of this program tonight uh, Thank you again I, I appreciate it Cassie, give us a little bit of a background I was, I was reading over your information Um you seem to be a true advocate for what I've read on this paper in front of me tonight. And per our conversation a few weeks ago, uh, 
thank you for your service of advocacy and one with passion to make a difference in this nation. We salute you tonight from this program and our entire team here uh, gives you a very special thank you uh, for what you do. Um, I was looking here and showing that you were, you have strong efforts in advocating and keeping families intact while perhaps their loved one is incarcerated. Um, some certain things that you witnessed and saw that brought you to the point of where you are today. Why don't you share that with our listeners? I, yeah, thank you. Thank you for asking. I'm always um, so willing and, and wanting to um, share my story. How I became involved in advocacy is is my husband is um, serving a sentence in federal prison and he is in prison for a white-collar crime. We married just three months before he went to prison. I had not had much to do with our criminal justice system, and I was researching his case because he was doing an extra two years. He was guilty of what he did. He was doing an extra two years for something he didn't do, and I just thought, oh, it's a mistake. You know, We'll get this all fixed. So as I was researching, I um, happened upon FAM, Families Against Mandatory Minimum, their webpage. And I sat there one evening and I started reading the profiles of the men and women that were are incarcerated for nonviolent, mostly um, nonviolent drug offenses and the extraordinary amounts of time they are spending behind bars. I didn't know about this. I didn't know about mandatory minimums. I thought we had a fair system. By the end of that night, I was sitting in my chair at my computer in tears. And at that point, I said, I want to be a part of this change. This is not right. I mean, if somebody like me, who, who is slightly naive about our, our, our system, can see this, why can't our lawmakers that are making the laws and making this absurdity happen, why can't they see that? I immediately got in contact with Sam and, you know, became one of their advocates. And then I saw a need for, um, you know, our our recidivism rate is so high. Well, geez, I can't imagine why. I mean, you you take men and women, our, our, our citizens, you incarcerate them, you don't offer any rehabilitation, you don't offer them um, any skills, you demean them every day. And every day, these men and women have to struggle to wake up to find purpose and value because it's yep. taken away from them every day. So, the one thing that I saw that we could do so often, um, uh, a loved one is incarcerated so far away from their family member that the family member, you don't have the financial wherewithal to go visit their loved ones. And they, 
Safe and safe visits are so crucial to keeping a family intact, to building a healthy support system, for making the person that's incarcerated to feel relevant because they are relevant and to feel hope. Yes. And so our mission, we help facilitate these visits, whether it's a um, gas money, accommodations, ride share, airline, whatever we can do to keep these families connected and intact and to have the person come home and have a successful journey. That's what we want. That's we awesome. should all be applauding and rooting, rooting for our citizens who are incarcerated to come home and be successful. We should be their cheerleading team. Hey, listen, I'm I'm just sitting here smiling. Uh, hey, that type of passion is what gets the job done. That type <laughs> of uh, uh, effort is what gets things done. And I was I was reading this. Uh, Cassie, that uh, you were very much, uh, you wrote an article, an opinion um, on May 20th, mm-hmm. 2019. The Second Step Act should give white collar criminals a chance after release. And I think you and I talked briefly about the IRP5 um, and yes. what they're dealing with. Well, uh, we, and, I, and I'm saying this because I think we can work together to get some things done. Uh, Clint Stewart uh, was released on the First Step Act. Uh, was it a yes. couple of months ago? I, I saw your video. It's amazing. Awesome, right? It's amazing. If nobody well, else has seen it, watch it. It's so inspiring. <laughs> well, listen, all you got to do is do hashtag Clinton Stewart on Twitter. And we are up, uh-huh. uh, the number I think is 293,000 views. Oh, it, it continues fabulous. to climb. I'll tell everybody, and, and, and Cassie, I'll let you get in on the fun here. Uh, listen. Uh, that's viral in the social media world, and it continues to climb. Hashtag Clinton Stewart, uh, and it's people are going over the top uh, to get this story told. And it's because three other guys remain incarcerated at the Florence prison camp. Uh, exactly. Here, here in Colorado. So uh, I, if you call that a plug, I just gave one. Uh, go out there, hashtag Clinton Stewart. And Cassie, my understanding is I'm looking at more information on you that uh, you were very much uh, that, uh, involved with at least um, believing in the First Step Act that President Trump yes. uh, actually sent you a personal letter. Is that correct? Yes, he did. He did. Um, yeah, I checked my mailbox. Yeah, I checked my mailbox. You know, and here's this Manila envelope, and pull it out, and then I see it's stamped the White House. I'm like, oh, my gosh. And now, you know, in my haste, I ripped open the, the manila yes. envelope, and I wish I would have, you know, preserved that better. Right. Yeah, it was, yes. Um, yeah, so he sent a, a personal letter. I've, I've written, you know, done, you know, my my job, you know, in, in writing um, our president. And I was happy to get something in return. And, now I have it framed, but also um, not only is that a very, very proud uh, and and thrilling moment, but I, I must share that I had an opportunity after the first step back was um, passed is I had uh, emailed uh, Senator Grassley because he was head of the Senate Judiciary Committee. Right. 
And I was, and I was just, I think my naivete is advantageous to me because right. I, I, I don't think I can't, so I do. And so I emailed like, oh, but, you know, I, I just told them my story and, and about my organization and that I wanted to have an opportunity to thank him. And like four days later, uh, his staff gets back to me. So I had an opportunity to actually sit with Senator Grassley, shake his hand, talk to him. And I have to say, he made me feel as important as anybody he has ever met with he listened intently he was kind he was genuine and um it was like my biggest school girl moment ever <laughs> well, that's 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 great that's awesome and listen yeah. there's something about a positive push and an advocate with a vision that becomes mm-hmm. Uh, and I don't care if that's the president of the United States, if it's senators, congressmen, congresswomen, uh, senator women, men, all across the board, uh, it becomes contagious. Uh, and mm-hmm. passion, is, passion is something that you just simply cannot hide. Uh, I am so thrilled, uh, and I, I just got a good feeling uh, that you and I and, this, and the Just Cause organization and this radio program uh, will have a very fruitful uh, advocacy relationship uh, as we fight for justice, not only for your husband, uh, but for all of those that stand in harm's way in a criminal justice system, uh, to be honest with you, that is failing, but grateful uh, for the steps that have been made in the First Step Act. Uh, and as your uh, op-ed said, the Second Step Act, uh, you've already graduated yeah. up to the second step. Uh, and we're still congratulating folks on the first step. So we salute you for that. Um, I, I believe we can definitely work together to get things done. I have no doubt about that. Uh, that thrills me to no end. Yes, I'm all about that. Thank you. Well, what I want to do. I think we'll be a... dynamic. No, absolutely. And that, that's what we need to be. And uh, your efforts and what I've seen, and again, in your nonprofit uh, of a day closer, um, I cannot tell you how thrilled I am to hear the passion uh, and the the push for justice uh, that comes genuine. And I believe we got organizations out here that are doing just that. Uh, we're going to come back, uh, uh, Cassie, with your closing thoughts uh, and information you'd like to put out about your organization. Uh, I will definitely be in touch offline. And uh, what a what a thrilling conversation we've had tonight and a very difficult topic. Uh, that we've had to address. We're going to be doing this series probably for the next three weeks. Uh, I extend a personal invitation to you, to this program, uh, to come back and join in the conversation if you see fit. How's that sound to Thank you? Thank you. I would, I, I, would, I would really appreciate that, definitely. Okay. We're going to talk to you on the other side of the break. Ladies and gentlemen, AJC Radio, we're talking about one thing tonight, usual cruel and usual punishment behind the wall. And we have been joined with Cassie Monaco, who is, I'll tell you what, she's making a difference and making some things happen. And we're, you're going to hear from her on the other side of the break in our closing segment of AJC Radio. We'll be right back. The United States of America incarcerates more people than any other country in the world. In fact, 
the U.S. hosts more prison inmates than all other developed nations combined. As of 2010, the world population was over 6.8 billion people, with an estimated 9.8 million in jail. This figure, compiled by the International Center for Prison Studies, refers both to individuals held in jail awaiting trials and inmates serving time after sentencing. So there are 9.8 million human beings on planet Earth living inside of cages that we know of. In 2010, the U.S. was home to about 309 million people, 4.5% of the world's total population, but housed 23% of the world's prisoners. So take a moment to think about what this means. It means we imprison more people than enormous autocratic countries like China. We imprison more people than Russia. Compared to the size of our population, our rate of imprisonment dwarfs our closest allies, like the United Kingdom, France, and Canada. As of 2010, there were over 1.6 million post-trial inmates serving sentences in America's state and federal facilities. This number does not include those being detained pre-trial or those on probation. The most unique feature of incarceration in America is the large and active role of our federal government. In most countries, crime is reacted to at the local or regional level, whereas the American government finances and legislates a significant portion of law enforcement at the national level. State governments still do their fair share of incarceration, though. California and Texas incarcerate more than other states with over 171,000 inmates each. Florida is a close third with over 103,000 prisoners. But no single state locks up more people than the federal government with over 208,000 inmates. Perhaps the nickname Land of the Free, Home of the Brave, should be updated. Though I suppose you need to be brave to endure the highest likelihood of incarceration the world has ever known. Prisons are not what we think about when we think of America, and they shouldn't have to be. A free nation shouldn't imprison so many people, and a fiscally responsible nation can't afford to. With close to $40 billion a year in state correctional spending, the financial costs are obvious and staggering alone. But the human costs are often underappreciated. 1.6 million fathers and mothers, brothers and sisters, sons and daughters of American families are incarcerated. It's time for people to realize that the criminal justice system in America is desperately in need of reform. Uncle Bill, how am I supposed to grow up to respect women when I have such lousy role models? Boys are never going to approach you. Can you help me reshape my attitude towards women? You need to teach them that violence against women is wrong. Well, welcome back, ladies and gentlemen, to AJC Radio, as we have been honored tonight, our honored guest, Cassie Monaco, uh, from a Day Closer organization, uh, who is really in conversation tonight, as well as earlier, a few weeks ago, has really, I don't want to say earned her wings as as an advocate, but is definitely proven uh, to be a true advocate for justice, and we are so pleased to have her on this program tonight. 
And Cassie, welcome back. As uh, you know, what the clock just continues to tick as we tick down and come to the end of another show. Uh, I appreciate your position and your perspective uh, on this topic. Thank you very much. Thank you. It's been quite an honor um, being on your show and, and a privilege. And you know, I thank you all. I just cause for everything that you do um, in helping. Um, all of our citizens who are incarcerated. No, for sure. And and, and the feeling is mutual. Uh, Ditto that uh, as well to you and what you do. Um, Cassie, what would you like to say to our listeners? Again, uh, we can't, we didn't get through all that we wanted to get through tonight, but we, again, this is part one of a, probably a part three series. Um, Love to have you back in more conversation because we will get to more uh, on this topic what would you say to our listeners tonight that are in situations that we have talked about, of course, in brief tonight, uh, what would your thoughts be to those listeners that are listening and about your organization and the importance of not remaining silent in situations of injustice? Um, Such a great point. So many people um, are embarrassed um, to share their experiences I learned early on that I couldn't be embarrassed when my, um, so just to back up a little bit, I believe that if we are experiencing something good, bad, indifferent, that if you don't share it with people, it's a waste of an experience. What I'm going through, what you're going through, or our neighbor is going through, somebody else is also, and they don't need to feel alone. And when we share our experiences, we come together and we can make change and we can help each other and protect each other. And I will tell you uh, how I came about this. First Mm -hmm. of all, I kind of kept this, what was happening to my husband, a secret, and it it caused a a, a rift in my family because, you know, basically I I, I wasn't honest and it, it looked like a lie. I didn't know how to handle it, you know, it was a new situation. But when I took him to, um, to prison, I came back to our church and I talked to our pastor and I said, this is a situation. I don't know what to tell our congregation. And he said, well, Cassie, what do you want to tell them? What do you want them to know? And I said, the truth. And he said, well, there you have it. And that Sunday, I walked into church. The first person came up to me and gave me a great big hug and said, hey, where's Chris? <laughs> in tears, I said, in federal prison. <laughs> right, and right. there you went. It, it's about being honest. We've got to share our experiences, um, you know, for just not only to help ourselves, but to help everybody else. I am in this because of my husband. Because yeah. of my husband's situation, but I'm doing this for everybody who's incarcerated and for all the families. I well, stumbled means, into this, but I'm all in. That's, that's awesome. And I'll tell you what, uh, I look forward to meeting your husband uh, one day and meeting you in person. Uh, I know we had missed each other at the, at the Florence uh, prison camp. Uh, yes. But I'll tell you what. <laughs> Uh, we're going to continue to be a voice for those that don't have one. 
And unfortunately, voices behind the wall are silenced uh, by the mm-hmm. conduct of those that govern them. Uh, but we intend, as a just cause and uh, a day closer, uh, to come together and, and do some things. And I cannot be more proud uh, of the efforts and the work that you have done. Uh, and, and to be in this fight as advocates as we are, that means a heck of a lot. And I can say that for a just cause organization and our team. Uh, that means a heck of a lot. And I thank you so much uh, for taking time out of your schedule tonight to join in this conversation. Again, we'll be in touch offline, but I hope we can have you back maybe next week to get into more conversation because there's a lot more ground to cover. If you're available, if not, we understand. Uh, but uh, you'll always have an open invitation on this program. I mean that. Thank you. I will make myself available because you are absolutely correct. There is a lot of ground to cover. <laughs> Okay, well, listen, have a great rest of your evening, and uh, thank you for your contribution to this show tonight. It means a lot, okay? Thank thank you all so very much. I'm so appreciative. Okay, we'll be in touch, Cassie, okay? Okay, thank you so much, and and keep up the good fight. And same to you, for sure. All right, thank you. Thank you. Well, there you have it, ladies and gentlemen, Cassie Monaco. Uh, doing some things, it's refreshing. Uh, as we talk about a very difficult topic tonight, and we will finish this conversation, part two next week, Use cruel and usual punishment in our society, in our criminal justice system, and it's running rampant in this country, and we will continue to bring it to the attention of our listeners across this nation. A very special thanks again to Cassie Monaco, uh, our prayers and thoughts go to her family and for the injustice she had suffered. Uh, William, your thoughts on that as we close this show? Well, you know, you have to admire her spirit and the way she looks at things and then understanding, facing what she's faced, you know, that there was a bigger fight and she's in it. And so you have to really respect and love where she's at. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Ladies and gentlemen, we are against the clock. Thank you so much for joining us tonight. We'll be back same time next week. With this topic, cruel and usual punishment in America's criminal justice system. Good night, America. <laughs>